Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. Viewers and listeners, I apologize. We didn't have a show last week because I was traveling, and we forgot to warn you. I will try to warn you next time. There aren't very many weeks that we don't have a show, but um, it was awfully nice that you guys were scared I got booted off YouTube. (laughs) I'll try not to startle you next time. So this week, we are going to talk about Amber Heard and her multiple, uh, numerous personality disorders. And we're going to talk about why we didn't have a show last week, which was this fantastic conference in Fort Worth uh, put on by Myth Informed called the Better Discourse Conference. And then we're going to do some what I call secondhand therapy. And this is like secondhand smoke, but better. I pay to get therapized and then you get free leftovers. So... Let's jump right into Amber Heard. I'm talking about the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp lawsuit not because I'm particularly interested in either of them as a celebrity figure. I'm not. I'm talking about it because everyone is seeing this right now, and it is one of the best examples of... um, It's really a public education in personality disorders, and what we see apparently going on between the two of them is very typical of what you see that goes on in abusive households of normal people who are not celebrities. So if you're thinking that maybe this is a crazy uh, sort of, oh my God, these celebrities act so crazy, believe me, this is no crazier than stuff I've seen in real life. Here's the background. Uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp used to be married. They're divorced. Recently, Amber Heard wrote an op-ed in which she claimed that she was representing domestic abuse survivors. She didn't name Johnny Depp, but the implication was clear, and I think that's the basis of his libel suit against her right now. As a result of this, Johnny Depp claims that he lost his roles in the very lucrative Pirates of the Caribbean movie franchise that he stars in. And some of the behaviors that he's described from her, um, and actually we have some visual evidence, uh, include things like pooping on his side of the bed and (laughs) This is a little extreme, isn't it? Um, Keep a bucket next to the bed, Amber. Jesus. But also, and this is classic, he claims that Amber Heard would make a claim that he had hit her or in some way physically assaulted her when it did not happen. And she would do this as somebody was walking into the apartment and say things like, that's the last time you'll ever hit me, Johnny. Also very typical, if true. So what we're going to hear, we've got some clips here. We're going to spend some bit of time on it. This is an expert witness. Her name is Dr. Shannon Curry. And she was hired by the defense to give a psychiatric evaluation to Amber Heard. I'll cut right to the chase. She ends up diagnosing her with both borderline and histrionic personality disorders. Both of those are cluster B. And keep in mind here how appropriate this is. Histrionic is is from the French and originally from the Latin. And what it means is like an actor. So surprising that anyone in Hollywood would have this, don't you think? <laughs> Let's go right into the first clip here. Um, and Dr. Curry starts to... Um, actually, I just... I'm going to show you several clips here, but this is at least a half an hour of direct examination. I highly recommend that you watch this entire half hour. 
Dr. Curry gives a master class on recognizing borderline and histrionic personality pathology. She's obviously an educated professional, but she has that talent of putting these things into very clear and direct language that any adult person can understand. She does not speak in gobbledygook. She's quite good. So let's go into the first clip. One of the primary things I learned was that um, she had a very uh, sophisticated way of minimizing any personal problems. Um, I also learned that she tends to, uh, well, there were a number of characteristics that were consistent with the eventual diagnoses, but um, some of the primary characteristics, and I'm gonna try to condense 25 pages here, were essentially um, externalization of blame, uh, tending to have a lot of inner hostility that is attempted to be controlled, um, a tendency to be very self-righteous, but to also deny that self-righteousness and to judge others um, critically uh, against these sort of high standards for moral value, but also to deny doing that. Essentially to, to claim that one is uh, uh, very non-judgmental and accepting and yet very full of rage, really. So what we've got here, the, these behaviors that she's describing are common to um, most of the cluster B personality disorders, but they are particularly prominent in borderline personality disorder, the externalization of blame. Everyone else is always at fault. This is your friend who... Every single girlfriend he's ever had has been an abusive bitch. Every single boss he's ever had has been out to get him. Every landlord that he's ever rented from has treated him badly. They're never, never to blame themselves. Everything that goes wrong is, is somebody else's fault. And I can't remember. I, I didn't hear if I got that, if we heard that in this clip, or maybe we're going to hear it in the next one. But Dr. Curry also talks about Amber Heard's, she describes it as having a sophisticated way of minimizing her responsibility. I think we'll probably hear that in a couple of the other clips. Let's go to the next one. So externalization of blame, um, a lot of inner anger and hostility. Sometimes that anger among these groups with similar scores, these people might have that anger kind of explode out at times. They tend to be very passive aggressive. They may be self-indulgent, very self-centered. Um, they uh, could use manipulation tactics to try to get their needs met, very needy of attention, acceptance, approval. Um, they tend to uh, distance people who are close to them. Initially, they may seem very charming. They're very socially sophisticated, actually. That was a major component on there. Um, they have a capacity to kind of offer some of their faults, but uh, in a way, but only the ones that people think of lightly and can all relate to. And so they can present as very fair and balanced, but in actuality, they really might uh, uh, be very judgmental of others and unaware of problems in their behavior and their thinking. I should have told you before, uh, part of the way she evaluated Amber Heard was she administered the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is a very long test of statements that the uh, client is asked to agree with or rate on a certain scale. Um, she also did some follow-up. Um, did you notice in that last clip, 
people pointed this out to me. And it's, it's great. I'm glad other people are noticing it. Amber Heard was doing Joan Crawford face while she was listening to Dr. Curry testify because she was doing this. Very, very typical. The, I, you know, I talk so much about how people like this arrange their faces. You can see the dismissive haughtiness. You know, I'm going to get you. You don't know what you're talking about. You're stupid. Very typical. <laughs> what have we got coming up here? Ah. Yeah, very good. We've got another one. Let's hear that. What coup type was misheard? Ms. Heard had the clearest code type was 3-6, but then she also had some other code types that were less significant. What characteristics are associated with a 3-6 code type? So a 3-6 code type, a lot of that anger is expressed in this code type. Um, there can be actually a lot of cruelty, uh, usually with people who are less powerful, uh, Actually, when you see this code type, you want to, if you can, to follow up with subordinates, co-workers, people who may have observed their behavior more closely. The 3-6 code type is very concerned with their image, um, very attention-seeking, uh, very prone to externalizing blame to a point where uh, it's unclear whether they can even admit to themselves that they do have responsibility in certain areas. Notice how she talks about cruelty to subordinates and people who are less powerful. Many of you will have seen this behavior in people in your life who has these disorders. You remember a few shows ago where we showed the uh, clip of the woman on a plane who was berating her seatmate and then she was mistreating the airline staff when they told her that she was going to be escorted off the plane. She started abusing the young man sitting next to her because that young man had um, a Trump shirt on. This is exactly it. It's it's like how my mother would make a scene in grocery stores and yell at the cashier if there was a mistake. Um, you know, just embarrassing the hell out of everyone around you and there's nothing you can do about it. But when they think that the person that they're targeting is less powerful, they, they give themselves freer reign. And I liked how Dr. Curry said uh, this is something – you know, when somebody in her position sees these indicators on this test, she wants to follow up with subordinates. This is very, very important um, because in most therapeutic settings, in a one-on-one -on -one client setting, of course, the therapist only hears what, what the client or the patient says, and that may or may not be accurate. In order to really diagnose something like this, it can be very helpful and sometimes very necessary to talk to other people in that person's life, particularly people that they have any sort of power over, whether it's familial power, political power, employment power. Um, they And they simply can't accept responsibility uh, for what they do. And, um, you know, sometimes when they throw fits like this in public or at other people, they're not even genuinely offended because nobody did anything to them. They simply wanted to start conflict because they enjoy the emotion that they get out of that conflict. This next clip coming up is a good one. We're getting to diagnosis time. Dr. Curry, tell us what's wrong with Amber Heard. How does Ms. Heard's code type uh, fit in with your overall opinion as to personality disorders? Well, um, this might be an appropriate time to describe a little bit about these personality disorders because I think what you'll hear is that there's a lot of consistency there. 
Um, so borderline personality disorder is a disorder of stability. It's instability, and it's instability in personal relationships. It's instability in their emotions. It's instability in their behavior, and it's instability in their sense of self and their identity. And that instability is really driven by this underlying terror of abandonment. So one of the key features also of this disorder, and all of it is like <clears throat> pistons of an engine kind of firing off and igniting one another. But when somebody is afraid of being abandoned by their partner or by anybody else in their environment and they have this disorder, they'll make desperate attempts to prevent that from happening. And those desperate attempts could be physical aggression, it could be threatening, it could be harming themselves. But these are behaviors that are usually very extreme and very concerning to the people around them. Um, uh, the anger is typically what, sadly, it's counteractive, right? So the thing these people fear most is being abandoned, but over time, the anger, the explosive anger that they show when somebody is uh, needing space or when somebody's really not doing anything wrong, because a lot of times they read into things that they perceive as being a slight to them or being somebody intending to harm them that actually isn't happening, they'll exaggerate it um, and they'll explode, they'll react in this heightened manner that is just exhausting for their partners. Oftentimes their partners will uh, try to make them happy at first and really allow themselves to be a punching bag thinking that they can somehow solve this problem, that somehow they can make this better. And eventually it just <clears throat> overwhelms them. That's so familiar to me. I've told you before, I tried to love my mother back to health I tried to buy her a house back to health. I tried to solve her poverty retirement problems to get her back to health. Nothing works. Nothing satisfies this because the hole inside people like this cannot be filled up by anything from the outside world. There's nothing you can do with it. The tragedy, just to think in empathetic terms with the borderline, the abuser in a situation like this, the tragedy for these people is that they are, of course, terrified of abandonment, but they make sure that they are abandoned because their very behavior creates the situation that makes them intolerable to people, including people who love them. My mother would text me dozens and dozens of times a day during the workday. At night, she'd call. She wanted me to drop everything I was doing, no matter what. Every minor repair that needed to be done was a tragedy that needed to be done right now. It was absolutely exhausting. Um, next clip's good. Well, all these clips are good because I chose them, and I choose good ones. <laughs> so um, pay particular attention. You may remember me saying on this show, that one of the most common mental health misdiagnoses is diagnosing someone who actually has borderline personality disorder with bipolar, which is our new term for manic depression. Listen to this. So essentially, uh, 
like I said, there's instability in emotions. People with borderline personality disorder are often misdiagnosed <clears throat> as having bipolar disorder because they can be up and down. They can look very depressed and they can look very elated, but these changes are happening within a matter of hours. Somebody with bipolar disorder, these are this is a clinical depression lasting days, weeks, a clinical mania where sometimes they even need to be hospitalized because they're so grandiose. They clear out their bank account and go to Vegas and spend it all. They're acting in some very bizarre ways. With uh, borderline personality disorder, you're having these fluctuating moods constantly. And again, this hypersensitivity to being slighted or feeling offended, really driven by the fear that if you're offended or slighted, if the therapist comes in two minutes late, or if somebody shows up to dinner two minutes late, that they might be abandoning you. I want to underline this for you because it's it's such a common misdiagnosis that that we lay people <clears throat> have internalized this. And it's a very sticky thought. And I know that because I have friends, both real life friends and friends on social media who I know intellectually know this, but they slip into it. It's almost like an emotional reflex. They say, oh, that sounds bipolar. That sounds bipolar. No, no, sir. It does not sound bipolar. Very easy distinction. Borderline personality disorder has mood swings that are wide and manic depression or bipolar also has mood swings that are wide. Key difference. The borderline's mood swings happen in minutes or hours, days at most. The manic depressive, the bipolar, usually over the course of a week or two weeks. Not the same, not similar, very different. Manic depression is a very serious illness, but it is not a personality or character disorder. Um, And, and this matters. I mean, it matters for accuracy, but it also matters in terms of treatment because I and I'm talking to some people right now um, who believe that they have a family member with bipolar and everything they're describing to me is borderline. Um, obviously, I don't know, but I'd be willing to make a, a pretty good guess. And if you put somebody with borderline on lithium, which is effective many times for manic depression, it's not going to be effective for borderline personality disorder, that's a problem. But the other problem is that misdiagnosis actually prevents the person with borderline personality disorder from getting the treatment that is specifically geared towards treating that personality pathology. It's one of the circumstances that that combines together with others that makes me say most borderlines are never going to get better because they're not going to know what's wrong with them. They're not going to accept it or they're going to be told something's wrong with them that isn't. Last clip before we go to the break here, and and the, well, w- let's listen together. And it's not as if the borderline is considering themselves abandoned in that moment, but they just know that they have this overwhelming emotion, and there are no attempts to control that emotion. There's no there are no attempts to regulate it. So if they're in the middle of the restaurant and they feel offended, they're going to start the fight. Uh, people are going to see it or they might just start crying or break down, but they'll make a lot of accusations. And that reactivity is when you're gonna just, you're gonna see a lot of this escalation in the bizarre behavior. They can react violently, they can react aggressively, they will often physically prevent their partner from trying to leave if their partner wants to get space from all of this intense emotion. And oftentimes they will Uh, be abusive to their partners in these situations. Sometimes they'll physically restrain them from leaving and become injured that way, but also 
People with borderline personality disorder, it seems to be a predictive factor for women who implement violence against their partner. And one of the most common tactics that they'll use is actually physically assaulting and then getting harmed themselves. But mostly, um, we call this administrative violence. So essentially, this is saying that they'll make threats using the legal system. So um, they might say that they are going to file a restraining order or claim abuse, or they might do these things to essentially try to keep their partner from leaving. In the moment, again, they're not consciously thinking, I'm going to keep my partner from leaving right now. They're just thinking, I can't stand this. I hate my partner. They went from idealizing to suddenly devaluing because of the hurt, and they'll do anything to express that big emotion of anger. The two key things I'd like you to remember about that, when she said this is a predictive factor, women with borderline personality disorder who are going to use violence against their partners, the part where she said they will start an argument and then you know the partner will hit her, she'll get hurt in the middle of that. I have seen this with my own eyes and I've observed it in other people. There are women out there who will provoke a fight with their male partner so that they will get hit, so that they can call the police. It's not all of them, but it does happen. Um, And the other thing is, I love this term, administrative violence. This is a cluster B woman's main tool and main weapon. And we see it everywhere. We see it in the women who are running these HR departments. We see it, and we're going to talk about this next week in more detail, the new um, Ministry of Truth our government has uh, created in their new director. Um, It's this HR management sort of stuff, rules and bureaucracy. Um, when, when I threw my mother out of the house that I owned, she actually threatened to file a report with adult protective services with the state claiming that I was an elder abuser. And one of her, one of her grounds for this, this is how deranged it is. I refused to be her drug supply source. I refused to run marijuana for her. I don't have anything against marijuana. I've used it myself. (laughs) but uh, uh, my mother um, used a lot of it and that that's how disconnected from reality so you know um, I ended up calling adult protective services preemptively and I I mean I didn't file a report but I followed it up with an email and I said this is our family situation you may expect to get a call or a report from so-and-so Um, I wanted to get ahead of this because we're trying to get my mother help, but we're also trying to get her out of our lives, et cetera, et cetera. That's something you may consider uh, is preemptively contacting authorities if someone makes that threat against you. It's going to be time for a break, but I want to remind you that we have a new Twitter account, and this is where all of our content goes out, all of our show announcements. Follow us at Disaffected P, Disaffected, the letter P, and we'll see you after the break. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. 
Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off-camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com slash disaffected or visit subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Welcome back. Do us a favor, would you share us on social media? Word of mouth is our best advertising. Tell people about us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you like. And uh, thank you. This segment, we are going to talk about where I was last weekend not doing a show for you. The organization Myth Informed puts on this fantastic event at least once a year called uh, the Better Discourse event or conference. And the goal is to talk about major political and cultural issues on a stage in public with people who disagree with each other. And they have a harder time getting people from the left to come because um, they just seem less willing to debate these things. But they do manage to get some. And there were panel events all day. You can see all of this on YouTube or on um, their Odyssey channel. And you should watch them because all the panels were fantastic. I'm because this is my show. I'm going to feature the one that I was on. Uh, but there was a barnstormer panel about uh, three letter agencies, the FBI, the CDC, uh, uh, other things like that with a lot of really fascinating participants. And um, it was just a really, really good time. So this panel I'm going to give you the participants. Um, my friend Carrie Smith, host of the Deprogrammed podcast. Carrie's been on my show before. She was the moderator. Colin Wright is an evolutionary biologist, and he's got a new substack. His writing is very clear. Uh, you should check him out. Justin Gibson is a self-described SJW social justice warrior. He goes online by the handle Jangles Science Lad. I don't know if he has his own show, but uh, you can look him up that way. And uh, podcaster Blair White, who, as many people know, is a transsexual. Um, you know, the old school before we called everybody transgender um, had what we used to call sex change surgery. And Blair is not on board with modern gender ideology, especially insofar as it affects the rights and safety of women and children. So the question was, can you be born in the wrong body? And what do we do with people who believe that they are born in the wrong body? What's the right way to approach this? So we'll start out with a clip. Carrie Smith asks the question, and uh, Justin gives the first answer. So... It's a, I would say it's a simplistic platitude to describe a pretty complex phenomenon. A good analogy would be like uh, the born this way movement for uh, uh, gay liberation, right? Advocating for gay people, advocating for gay marriages. You know, I was born this way, and that's a not quite true, but it's like kind of the simplistic platitude that we had to like adopt to like sell it to the general public. I think the better question would be like, what would make this person the happiest? I don't believe in like a soul or anything like that. So when someone says, you know, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm in the wrong body. I feel like the best way to approach that would be like the scientific approach is what are the things that we can do to make you happier? And it seems like the evidence points to any sort of like gender affirmative care from kids to adults seems to, at least for some people, the number is definitely not zero. And I would say it's uh, probably the most effective treatment going forward that it is good to affirm people's gender, makes them feel like who they are. And it's where we should be looking for as a society that values freedom, democracy, and personal liberty. That's what we in the atheism community, when I was a member of it, used to call the Gish Gallop. 
uh, creation apologist named Dwayne Gish who would rattle on very, very quickly and make a lot of statements that if you didn't listen carefully sounded like they made sense. But when you did listen carefully, you realized that they were smuggling. He was smuggling in a bunch of assumptions that that really need to be discussed. So did you hear the emphasis on, well, what do we do with such people? What can we do to make them the happiest? That's the scientific approach. Happiest in what way? Happy in the short term? Because there are a lot of people, including teenagers, who say, I am born in the wrong body. I'm supposed to be the other sex, the other gender. That's the only thing that will make me happy. Will they be happy in 10 years after their bodies start to fall apart from the treatment, the affirming care that Justin also mentioned? He says, the evidence is that it's good to affirm people's gender. Really? The evidence? Is that like the science? Does it have a capital? What does it mean to affirm people's gender? Makes them feel like who they are. (laughs) Does it make them feel like a natural woman too? This is just blah, 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 blah. Doesn't mean anything. There is no good evidence that affirming people's gender, whatever that is, makes them the happiest. Yes, people will report, I am happier when you call me the pronoun for the sex that I am not. (laughs) That is hardly an answer to this question. Let's listen to what I had to say about this. Um, The question, I I, I see this on a philosophical level. Um, I realize that probably most of us here on the stage and most of the people in the audience don't actually believe that someone can be born in the wrong body in that simplistic way. But there are a great number of people out there in this conversation who do in fact believe that and do describe it this way. And I would say that it's a question that doesn't make philosophical sense because how are you born? You are your body, right? Um, You can feel discomfort in your body. You can feel... um, you know, I, I think there's a common experience between, um, you know, a lot of young gay men. I remember this when I was a boy. You know, I thought I was born in the wrong body. And a lot of what people are called gender dysphoria today, I think, has a close relationship to uh, those kinds of feelings in homosexual people when they're young. And I think it's a matter of rubbing up against stereotyped expectations. But I don't think the idea that, you know, you were supposed to be a man, but you were born. In, in this body makes any sense because if, if we're going to credit that then we have to get into ideas of essences and souls that and I'm not trying to drag it into the religious sphere but you know I no I don't think you can because I don't think it's a thing that can happen okay maybe I should have uh, put those those clips together because uh, Justin has an answer and I'd rather you hear it from him than from me so we'll go right into the next one yeah, you'd be hard-pressed to find like a, a trans advocate or especially someone who's like a trans specialist working in a clinic who would say that simple gender nonconformity means that you're the opposite gender. It's going to be a lot more complex than that. Gender identity clinics don't just treat kids who are definitely uh, transgender, but they're also ta- uh, 
They're also treating kids who aren't behaving in a way that is stereotypical, and that's causing them distress. Like, they come to the, hey, I'm not doing the things all the other boys are doing. All the boys are making fun of me. I like girls. I, uh, I like uh, playing with girls' toys. And so they go to the clinic, not necessarily to be diagnosed as trans, but also to, like, talk through these feelings and why it's okay to be gender uh, nonconforming, why it's okay to not adhere to societal stereotypes. So in the modern, like, uh, conversation around trans issues, yeah, they're not based in stereotypes. It's way more complex than that. It's not just what your behaviors are. It's, like, who you, uh, who you are. Like, who, where is this coming from? So I think there's enough of historical precedent to say pretty sure that this is not a new thing, that gender identity is not a new phenomenon, that it is rooted in biology, because if it's not rooted in biology, if gender identity isn't rooted in biology, what is it? Is it supernatural? Cybernetic? What else would it be? What else would, would it be? It could be many things. It could be a mistake. It could be a misinterpretation of feelings and discomfort and distress. It could be a delusion. Without people signaling that there was something wrong or something pathological, if a boy doesn't act in a certain way or a girl doesn't act in a certain way, this construct that I'm born in the wrong body or that I'm supposed to be the other sex would never occur to people. That's what creates this. That's what created it in me when I thought I was born in the wrong body as a boy. Nobody said that to me deliberately, thank God, they're doing it now. But that's the logical, right, within its own framework, the logical way that a child will deduce an answer. Well, I'm acting this way and only girls act this way, so I must have supposed to have been a girl. Did, was I expressing my gender identity? No, because that doesn't exist. Personality exists. Sex exists. That's all. And Justin says that gender identity has to be based in biology because if it's not, what is it? Well, it can be all these other things and also psychiatric and also a sign of trauma and attachment disorders and possibly also a sign of autism. No, there is not good evidence that what we today call trans people have just existed throughout history. And, and, and what we're seeing now is just a flowering of acceptance and people coming out who were always there in the same numbers all along. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. And then I asked him to tell me what gender identity is. What does he mean by gender identity? This was his answer. What exactly do you mean by gender identity? Gender identity is just your gender that you feel deep within your heart. Now, here's how I can think. No, wait, wait, so, wait, wait a minute, though. That's <laughs> circular. I know. I'm, I'm about to help you okay. explain it. So, so we're two gay men on stage. So our sexuality is rooted in biology, and it's probably rooted in this uh, notion of sexual drive for the purposes of reproduction, right? So at some points in our development, probably uh, prenatal, probably while we were in the womb, something got crossed, and we are not attracted to the opposite sex for the purposes of procreation. In uh, like contained within that is a recognition of your own sex for that same purpose of, of procreation, right? All right, I need to know that I'm, I'm a man in order to find a woman and then procreate with her. So the same thing for sexuality, where wives can get crossed, can get crossed in a certain way with gender identity. That sense of who you are does have kind of a biological basis. It does have a biological use, and human beings are complex, and I think it's good to celebrate that complexity rather than just denying the experiences of a apparently growing number of uh, kids and adults. And I would just say really quickly, um, I don't accept the biology-only explanation for homosexuality either, so we may disagree on that as well. I had to get the sting in the tail. <laughs>
What is gender identity? It's the gender you feel deep in your heart. That's why I said it's circular, because it is circular. This is how they argue, people who believe in this ideology. Gender is the gender you feel. In your, deep in your heart. And people also tend to hide behind words like complexity and complication and nuance. In this context, that means they're bullshitting. <laughs> then we get to the topic of trans women in prison, specifically in women's prison. Take a listen to this. There's another area of public policy that's uh, come under scrutiny, and that's what we do with, with uh, transgender prisoners. Do they go to the, the prison for, for male or female? Um, what do you guys think about that? I, have, I have personally have mixed feelings about this, so I'm curious what everyone thinks about you it. You don't put penises and vaginas in a jail cell. That's pretty much simple. Thank you. There's something, and it's not the major topic of this panel, but I think it's something that I would ask everybody to tuck in the back of their minds and, and let it roll over in your minds over the next couple of days. There's a big problem that this conversation, not this conversation, but this conversation is not acknowledging. And that problem is mental health. And specifically, the number of people who have personality styles and mental styles that are engrossingly narcissistic, emotionally unstable, pathologically dishonest, predatory people. Predatory people are taking advantage of the designation trans, whether or not they're, quote, really trans or really believe it. We don't even need to ask this question. Leah Thomas is a perfect example. I don't know Leah Thomas. I can't diagnose Leah Thomas's mind. But I've been around long enough, and I know what I see in patterns. And I see the same pattern here. Leah Thomas is a man who thinks very highly of himself, who realized that if he called himself a woman, that nobody was going to be able to stop him at his height and his muscular build from doing what he did. And we are watching a lot of people who any honest person who is not afraid to tell the truth can look and say, this is a narcissistic liar taking advantage of gaps in our safeguarding and we are acting like we can't see it and we need to start talking about it. So you think it's more reasonable. Leah Thomas is better explains by, so Leah Thomas is better explains, better explains, in your opinion, that it's a man who wanted to cheat at swimming to achieve all the fame and glory of women's collegiate swimming, and he's willing to go through a bunch of hormone therapy, change his body. I don't know about you. It would no. I'm, I'm using your language here, because you know you. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah, I'm using your language. I respect language. So going through all this uh, changes in, in uh, their body, because it is a she. Yep. Call the Thomas she, please. No. All, yeah. <laughs> so you will not. Okay, so you were lying when you said we all respect and we can all like, live with each other. But what I was saying, like, it's, it's more likely that this person is, has just cheated to uh, get all the glory of women's collegiate swimming than it was just a uh, swimmer who actually was trans. That's, yes. That's, that is what I'm saying. That's nonsense. <laughs> Justin, a piece of advice, sweetheart. Don't give orders. That kind of stuff doesn't work on people like me. Call Leah Thomas a she. Don't give orders. Would you believe I've been watching Twitter today? 
Justin's fans seem to think he wiped the floor with me in, in this discussion, which they're insisting on calling a debate. I don't know. What do you think? We've got one more, and this, this is my favorite. This is, this is during Q&A. You will recall, viewers and listeners, at least a month ago, I talked about my trepidation about this event coming up because I felt a tension between showing personal respect to Blair White, who I was going to share a stage with, and respecting my boundaries and my, my moral commitment to telling the truth and not playing pronoun games. And um, everything was going along swimmingly until this happened. Um, earlier you intentionally misgendered Leah Thomas. Would you do the same thing to Blair White because she's sitting right next to you? And the second question is to, I don't remember your name, Colin? Yes, um, at the very beginning of this, you said that uh, dysphoria was a necessary component in order to identify someone as being trans. But if someone has transitioned, they've got all the surgeries, they've got all the hormones, and they no longer experience dysphoria, what do you call that person? Do you still call that person a trans person since they're no longer experiencing dysphoria? Or Well, it's, it's like if you have depression or something and you're taking medication, I mean, you're, you have to maintain the medication, otherwise you'll presumably go back to being depressed or something. So it's, yeah, you, you're receiving it even though if your dysphoria goes away. I would say you're, you're still trans because um, you've re you're receiving a certain treatment. You know, it's, it's ongoing. And then I'd also like to add one thing. Um, I've been in the trans community long enough to know that transition is not a cure for dysphoria. It is, in certain situations like mine and like other people I know, a great help for it and can reduce it greatly. But I don't know a single trans person that has zero dysphoria left after transition, especially because there's varying rates of success with transition. So um, I don't think it's that black and white. I'm glad you actually asked that question. Um, Here's it's go. something I thought about um, actually before you and I met. And how Thanks for turning it into a personal conversation. How that was gonna, no, this is this is actually this is actually interesting. I'll, I'll answer the first part first um, and the second part second. I didn't misgender Leah Thomas. I correctly sexed him. Second part of this, it. I, I'm Let sorry. Him say again. Excuse me. It's not your turn, sir. And thanks this, for signing me up for this conversation, too, by the way. I love it. Love it. This, this is something I thought a lot about because I will not do compelled speech. And whether you agree with me, telling the truth is a very important moral value to me. And it has a lot to do with why I do my show and why I talk about the subjects I do. But I'm also a gay man who remembers um, when I was younger that we had people like you, Blair, and people who simply dressed in a certain way or men who were more feminine, we all automatically said she for them or he for the butch lesbians who were like that because we were part of a community of people who cared about each other. And in those days, because I don't actually like to make people feel bad, I wouldn't get up in Blair's face and say, I want to make you feel like I don't respect you. I don't want to be mean or cruel, but I won't accept the dichotomy that in order for me not to be mean and cruel, that I have to do something that I genuinely believe is lying about the truth. This is a tough issue. I don't know how to answer you better than that, but that's how I feel. And also, no one's compelling you. I'm not sitting here, I, did I? We, we interacted before this. No one's compelling, exactly. Exactly, but the interesting thing is this gentleman clearly wanted there to be some revelation of animosity and clearly wanted you to be consistent with it's and, and so that was a 
Imagine that. Me and the trans woman on the same side. It was fun. It was fun. You guys, check out all of their videos from this event. They do such a good job. And if you get a chance, go to one of their conferences. I left there feeling better than I felt in two years. That was the first time I'd been on a trip of any length. And I was in a room full of a couple hundred people. There were probably 15 to 20% of the audience was on the left or social justice side. The rest, I would probably say, were in the independent libertarian conservative side. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, it was lopsided, but it wasn't unitary. And just being able to have intelligent adult conversations with people without fearing that I would be ejected from the room was a revelation. We shouldn't have to feel this way, but it, it was just wonderful. Um, and if you go, I think you'll have an experience like that, too. I want to round this out with a letter from a viewer. I had an audio episode of the show a um, week, week and a half ago titled, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And I talked about how to handle and how to, how to understand the times in my childhood when my mother did apparently kind and loving things for me and, and for my brother and sister and then would appear to hate us uh, the very next day. Um, a listener named Danny wrote in, and here's what she had to say. My mother was also BPD, borderline, but not narcissistic or physically abusive, and probably half the severity of your mother. Emotionally abusive, hot and cold, and in a marriage she didn't want with kids that she didn't want. By the time I was 12, I had decided to believe nothing she said, regardless. So I have a lot of experience with boundaries. I think the answer to your question must start from, does my mother have a consistent personality over time? Or does she have an ego? The answer is no. She formed a personality for a time, perhaps just for a few minutes, to support you, then it dissolved. And she disappeared until, for whatever reason, she reformed another personality that was also temporary. This, I believe, is what happened to the traumatized small child during their trauma. When I've referred to my mother as being three years old, my very experienced therapist insisted that the age where trauma produced a borderline was two and a half years old. So my answer to your question is, yes, she meant it at the time she said it. You, we, can't ask any more from a person whose ego keeps forming and then dissolving. If she had been able to continue her ego, she would have continued in the same belief and remained supportive. You can choose to imagine that that is what happened. I really like that way of thinking about it, Danny. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break. Come back and see us on the other side. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too, so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off-camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com disaffected or visit subscribestar.com 
disaffected. Welcome back. Have you subscribed to us on audio? If not, you should. This week, we've got a two-part episode with Corinna Cohn of the Heterodorks podcast. Uh, Corinna is also a transsexual who is not in touch, excuse me, not in line with modern gender ideology. You need to find it through your podcast feed. You won't find it on YouTube, so go to your podcast. And um, would you help keep us going and maybe give us a little to grow on? We'd really, really appreciate your support. Two ways to do it. Patreon.com slash disaffected or subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Thank you. I want to give you a sample of the ways in which pedophilia is being normalized in our society. People look at examples like this, and their first reaction is to say that it has to be parody. I'm afraid that's not true anymore. And I, I think what's happening is we are still operating on normal, insane values that most of us remember from older than five years ago. And we haven't quite gotten it through our heads yet that these people are serious. The culture has changed in such a way that what I'm about to show you can, in fact, be spoken in public without serious consequence. It's not parody. You may want to take a look at my friend Holly's Substack. Um, look for it. Google for Holly Math Nerd. That's how she styles herself. She has a great article from January 18th on her Substack titled, On the Push to Destigmatize Evil Why Pedophilia Must Never Be Normalized. And she makes a very compelling argument. Um, and she does it better than, than I could do just reeling this off on the show. Back in the 70s and 80s, both in the United States and in the UK, there were associations. In America, it was called the North American Boy Love Association, or NAMBLA, and in the UK, it was called PI, the Pedophile Information Exchange. These people are constantly, have always been sniffing around like dogs, hungry dogs at the edges of the gay community, looking to get their tent under, their nose under the tent. And to use us for respectability points, you know, well, we're just an orientation like you. And unfortunately, uh, there are some sex researchers, researchers such as um, Dr. James Cantor, who believes that pedophilia is an orientation and should be included in the LGBTQ rainbow. Ooh. So their latest ploy is, of course, a euphemism. They want you not to say pedophile. They want you to say minor attracted person. You see how clinical that sounds, how removed? doesn't hit you in the gut like pedophile does, does it? That's why they do it. Don't cooperate with them. Let's put the first one up on the screen here. This is a guy on Twitter named Harvey Delaney, and he says, Society will one day accept maps, minor attracted persons, as part of the queer community. We just have to keep pushing it. Let the world know the truth about who we are. It may take a bit, but eventually we will get there, and maps of the future will no longer have to hide who they are. Isn't that heartwarming? Next one. <laughs> he says, it also means I can go anywhere around children, and there is nothing they can do about it because I'm not on any registry. Nothing pisses these people off more than being a law-abiding map you perverted pig. Next one. If a parent allows me to babysit their child, I would never do anything in, with the child in secret that the parent wouldn't approve. I would never in reality betray a parent who was nice to me and trusted me as a family. 
I do have morals. Really? Would you do anything with a child that the parent did approve? You'd never betray a parent who was nice to you, huh? What about a child? Would you betray their innocence? One more. My goal in life is to change society's attitude towards maps and children's autonomy. To make experiences between maps and children harmless and acceptable. We have the intellect and arguments to do it. We just need the numbers. We must focus first on academia. You know, I think your goal in life is to rape children and get away with it. That's what I think. But you are right to focus on academia because academia is what gave us the bullshit like Michel Foucault, who appears to have been a pedophile himself and certainly argued against age of consent laws for very obvious reasons. Judith Butler, the rest of the postmodern bullshit canon, is responsible for this stuff filtering out into the country. This is why they focus on academia. All right, that's enough of that. Leaves a gross taste in your mouth. <laughs> Here's the fun part. We're going to do a fun part, and then we're going to end on a slightly serious note. So committed COVIDians, these are the people who just don't, they just can't quit it, baby. They can't quit it. <laughs> you know, when I was on... Um, when I was on this trip to Fort Worth and I was going through the airports and on the airplanes, I would say that no more than 10 to 15 percent of people I encountered were wearing masks. At Kennedy Airport in New York, everybody who worked at the airport and every uh, both airport staff and people who worked at the concessions and the stores, they were all wearing masks and they were still piping out over the PA system that you will be ejected and get a $50 fine if you don't wear a mask. They're doing it deliberately. This has been ruled um, unconstitutional. Federal judge quashed this TSA mask mandate. Um, but New York doesn't, doesn't like to give up its power. They're deliberately continuing to run an inaccurate PA to scare people. And it's kind of funny because almost nobody was listening to them. So here are our committed COVIDians and how they're responding to a society that is limping its way back to something more sane and normal. This is from, well, uh, first, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida uh, talking about the fact that the TSA mask mandate was ruled unconstitutional. He said, it's great to see a federal judge in Florida follow the law and reject the Biden transportation mask mandate. Both airline employees and passengers deserve to have this misery end. Yes, sir, they do. Michael V. Smith doesn't think so. He says, my friend picked up his mother at the airport last Friday. She brought COVID home and he got it too. Nice political win, Ron. Too bad the pandemic isn't over. I guess. <laughs> all right, it's time to break out the voice. These people are all getting the fucking voice. Real Patriot says, Exactly which law states that citizens should not follow proper health protocols in order to protect themselves and those around them in public? Listen, 
Listen, American citizens, you have it exactly backwards about our legal philosophy, our jurisprudence, and our constitution. We have inherent freedoms. They are not granted to us by the government. We have them. You may say they're endowed in us by our creator. You may say they are a feature of the natural world for rational creatures like humans. The government doesn't give them to us. The Constitution is mainly about constraining the government from taking our natural rights away from us. You have it backward. And so many Americans do. It is really scary. I have learned in the past two years how utterly fragile our constitutional and legal system is because in order for it to work, people have to believe in it. And when they don't, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Sam O. Mulligan says, Federal law section 361 of the Public Health Service Act grants the Secretary of Health and Human Services, delegated in part to the CDC, the authority to make and enforce regulations necessary. Yeah, well, guess what, um, Sam? It totally overreached. It got slapped down by a judge for its stupid, unconstitutional eviction moratorium. So what do you have to say about that? <laughs> Laura, who describes herself as somebody who reads banned books in Florida, revolutionary, she replies to, to Ron DeSantis, pro-COVID laws, pro-first pregnancy laws, laws banning equal rights, laws banning books, Lost banning words, anti-Disney, how's that free, Ron? <laughs> anti-Disney? <laughs> oh. uh. Um... <laughs> a gentleman named Peter Paradox, I think, a they-them, um, also with three vaccine syringe emojis and a couple of mask emojis, they-them says, I can't believe how many people will die because you're afraid of a mask. Just wear one, people. Mask up. <sighs> Grilled cheese. Then we've got JL who says, I'm on a Delta plane now with two kids and praying we can get off before the captain makes a mid-flight announcement that it is officially okay to cough and sneeze all over each other again. Well, my thoughts and prayers are with you, JL. Totally. You've got this, Mama Bear. Macy says, I'm not scared of COVID-19. I'm scared of my fellow Americans who, by and large, do not have the moral compass to care that one million Americans have died from a mostly preventable illness. <laughs> and my favorite <laughs> from these hypochondriac doctors. I mean, it's just brought them all out of the woodwork. This is, um, I've watched this guy I think I follow him. Maybe he blocked me. Um, his name is Jeremy Faust, and uh, he he's a medical doctor and an, uh, an ER doctor, emergency room doctor. For you Brits, that's A&E, accident and emergency. 
<laughs> Jeremy says, Hi, United Airlines. When I bought my tickets for me, my wife, who is pregnant, and our unvaccinated four-year-old, I assume you would continue to have a mask mandate. Now, you cancel it, and we have to board our return flight under your new no-mask-required policy. Thanks so much. Exactly, Jeremy. What is their damage? God. <laughs> They're going to have to get a new shtick because, I mean, I know this still works on some people, but, but most people are getting sick of this bullshit. Even some of the former COVIDians. All right. <laughs> I want to close up here doing something that I, I call secondhand therapy. When I go to therapy and learn something interesting, I like to share it with you. Um, so this week, I had my usual therapy appointment and I told my shrink and shrink, if you're listening, I know you're not actually a degreed shrink, but that's what I call you and you'll like it. <laughs> um, and I'm going to tell you about this. And as always, I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm not asking for anybody to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry about that or da 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 da. It's it's not about that. It's about sharing with you something that I suspect many of you feel inside, but may not have articulated before. And I know this is true because, you know, when I tried this out and I started this conversation on social media, people told me. In fact, one person said um, that I had just articulated her biggest fear out loud and she'd never been able to find the words for it before. So I hope this resonates for you. I'm going to tell you one of my core fears that lives with me all the time. And this fear that I have, I know intellectually that it is not true. But my emotions don't know that it's not true. I still feel the emotion as if it were true. I control it, and I do things anyway, but I still feel it. And it gives me anxiety. My core fear is that I was born bad, contaminated evil or dirty, that I'm fundamentally bad and I was born that way. And this takes expression in a number of different ways. And one of the ways is it translates into a fear that nobody actually likes me, even my friends. They suffer me, they tolerate me, but they don't actually like me. So that fear got ramped up in the weeks leading up to going to the Better Discourse event in Texas. And I thought I, I was going to meet people that I have known and I have known of and admired for a long time. People like James Lindsay, um, people like actress Nikki Klein, people like Lauren Southern, um, people like Carrie Smith, who's been on my show, but I haven't actually met before I met her this past weekend. And you know, everybody at this conference is more well-known than me, and some of them are actually famous people. So I had a little bit of anxiety, but I i guess what was going on in my head was, I'm going to get here, and I want to meet all of these people, but 
it's going to be terrible because I'm going to find out that none of them actually want to meet me. None of them are going to want to talk to me. And I'm going to die of shame and it's going to be so uncomfortable. I don't know what I'm going to do. So that's what goes on inside my head. You won't see it. I won't tell you about it when it's happening. And I won't not go to events because I refuse to be ruled by that kind of emotional broken record. But it still happens. Of course, no such thing happened at the conference. I was delighted, surprised and delighted that that the people and and not just not just the headliners, but there were there are people that I've made friendships with, online friendships and who who watch my show and I read their stuff or watch their shows who I've been dying to meet too and I got to meet so many of them. But I was worried that none of them really wanted to meet me. And what happened was that people that I, that I admire and that I find interesting were actually happy to meet me. You could see it. It, it felt really, really good. Um, you know, so perhaps having this experience, I don't know how many times I have to hit my head against the same lamppost, but maybe it'll sink in now. I'll keep you posted. Um, but this is the disconnect between intellect and emotion. It's one of the ways those two things can get broken and separated from each other when you grow up with early childhood trauma, developmental trauma. And I talked about this with my therapist. And, and he suggested thinking about it this way. And here, here is one of those examples. I know many people have said to me, that thing you just said, it's so obviously true and I can't believe it didn't occur to me. That happens to me all the time. Somebody has to say the most obvious thing to me. When it comes to issues like this, they have to say the most obvious thing and then I feel silly for not having seen it myself. Well, my therapist did that for me, thankfully. He said, if you are counseling or advising somebody like yourself with early childhood trauma, would you believe that they were born bad? Would that occur to you? No. No, it wouldn't. And he said, or... Would you say to them, and we were talking about this in terms of the, um, the born in the wrong body question, because it it's an interesting metaphor, not, not just in the transgender arena. He said, or would you say to them, perhaps you weren't born in the wrong body or perhaps you weren't born bad or contaminated. Perhaps you were born in the wrong household. That it wasn't your fault. Yes. That's clearly the case. I was born in the wrong household. I have household identity disorder. <laughs> but he's right. And if you can remember this, if, if you have experienced any of these feelings, if you have any of these gnawing problems, try to remind yourself of what my therapist reminded me of, and I will try to remind myself of it too. And that's the show. It's good to be back. See you next week.